1 Corinthians chapter 9 is a continuation of Paul's response to the Corinthian church having sent him a letter requesting information, his opinions on various topics, as we've looked at over the last couple of weeks with uh, regard to uh, marriage and singleness and uh, virgins and all of the associated things that are uh, part of those relationships. He moved on in chapter 8 to talk about uh, foods offered to idols and meats in particular. And then he went uh, in that chapter 8 uh, to talk about really the the need for us to have um, sensitivity to those who were thinking differently about the way we think with regard to what is allowed for us to do in regard to things offered to idols in particular. But it really carries over into many, many other areas as well. Uh, so we should be able, as we said last week, to relate to those kinds of things that would stumble our brothers and sisters in the Lord, that we need to be sensitive to those issues and uh, kind of make a, a, a decision, even though we might have a privilege, the freedom to do things, it's not necessarily right for us to do them, especially with regard to when it affects negatively a brother or sister in the Lord. That's why Paul said in the last verse of chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, he said, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So that's what he was saying is the regard that we should have for the concerns, the conscience of our uh, fellow Christians uh, in the Lord when they don't think that it's right for us to participate in certain things, then we should be careful not to do those things in their presence because it would cause them really to stumble or even sin. Uh, so we want to avoid that at all costs. Now in chapter 9, Paul's going to be kind of deviating from those things, but still talking about rights and privileges. And in this chapter, he talks primarily about his own situation. I'm not sure that there was a question that they would have asked that caused him to move in this direction, but it seems to be because he was talking about rights and privileges in the previous chapters that he began to think about his own particular situation as an apostle, uh, knowing that the Corinthian church had a history of uh, developing cliques over the years. And remember, he started out his letter in 1 Corinthians talking about the fact that some were saying that they were of Apollos and some of Cephas, some of Paul, some of Christ. And Paul addressed that in that earlier chapters. Uh, but he's now going to be talking about the fact that he, as the one who established the church in Corinth and ministered to them for as long as he did, some one and a half years, that there were certain privileges that Paul could take advantage of if he so chose to do. So in chapter 9 again, verse 1, he says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Paul is asking rhetorical questions here. Of course, the answer to all of those is yes. He is and was, at least, a, an apostle. And he proved that by asking the second question regarding apostleship. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Apparently, in the first century church, the mark of an apostle, and it was also given in the book of Acts, was that they needed to have been with the Lord. Uh, so they needed to have been uh, not only 
um, called by the Lord, but it was evidenced by that having been with Jesus, either during his earthly ministry or after his earthly ministry, after his resurrection. And Paul, I believe, experienced both. It's very likely that he, as a Pharisee, would have seen Jesus ministering when he was in Jerusalem, and Paul would have been very well aware of Jesus' ministry uh, before his death and resurrection. And, of course, after his resurrection, the Lord appeared to Paul on several occasions, um, once in Corinth, once in Jerusalem, and elsewhere. And Paul had every right to declare himself to be an apostle. When Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, Jesus called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And by this time, Paul had already completed two missionary journeys, and he was now in his third missionary journey uh, and in Ephesus writing to the Corinthian church, whom he had been very much involved with, especially during that second missionary journey where he spent so much time there. So he knows that he is asking questions that they would all of them have to answer with an affirmative yes. And then in verse 2 it says, if I am not an apostle to others, and he was, but he's saying this rhetorically, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The seal, the uh, stamp of uh, approval, the stamp that they would use in that day to identify a package as being theirs, uh, that kind of seal is what Paul is referring to here. They are definitely his ministry that he had started, and he's acknowledging that they are his seal of the apostleship that he's just been talking about. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, My defense to those who examine me is this. So apparently there were some who were questioning, even though he had been the one who founded the church and had done miracles in their presence and made that manifestation of apostleship known to them, there were some who still apparently were questioning that. So Paul's answering this to them. He says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Notice he's going to use the word right or privilege here and in several other places as he continues talking about these issues that he himself has been having to deal with and wants to convey his concerns about these issues to the Corinthian church. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? That's what he's referring to in chapter 8. Yes, he did have a right to eat meat offered to idols or drink whatever he wanted to drink. That it was his choice, his right to do that. And again, remember, Paul had already said in earlier places, and we'll say it again in chapter 10, uh, I, everything is lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. Not all things are proper for me to participate in. So Paul is here again saying, I have the right to do these things, don't I? I find it interesting also in these few verses that we just looked at. In verse 5, he talks about uh, bringing along a believing wife, a sister wife. Uh, the original Greek is actually the word for sister, but it implies a sister in the Lord, a believing wife. And apparently Paul, at this time in his life, was not married. 
but other of the apostles and servants of the Lord who were ministering around the area that he knew the Corinthian church was were aware of, they were bringing their wives. Among them was James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. Um, the other James, John's brother, had already died as a martyr. And so this is not that James. This is the James that wrote the book of James in the New Testament, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He had apparently a wife. But also take note of the fact that he mentions that Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, Simon Peter, had a wife also. Uh, and I know that the Catholic Church um, presents a different concept with regard to church leadership, especially with the priesthood and bishops and cardinals and the Pope are not to marry. But Paul says elsewhere, forbid not to marry. So Paul is really not very much in agreement with the Catholic Church doctrine of the celibacy of the, the uh, Pope and the servants in the church. But here Paul says, I have the right, if I had a wife, to take her along with me, as do the other apostles. And then in verse 6, the last verse that we just read, he mentions Barnabas. I find that interesting because you may recall, this is now, as I said, his third missionary journey that he's on. He's in Ephesus, and he's been already traveling around that region two times previously. The very first ministry, traveling ministry of Paul, was with Barnabas. And remember, Barnabas and Paul left uh, Antioch of Syria, and they traveled up into the region of Turkey, then down to Crete, and when they got to uh, one of the other cities in that island territory, John Mark, who had gone with them and was Barnabas's nephew, decided that he couldn't handle it and wanted to go home. And Paul and Barnabas continued their ministry journey, and when they came back to Antioch, they were there for several months and decided, let's go again to visit the churches where we had been previously. Barnabas wanted to again take John Mark. Paul did not want him to go. And the argument was so severe between them that they went in different directions. Barnabas took John Mark with him and went on a separate missionary journey. Paul went with uh, Silas and he went on on his second missionary journey into eventually uh, Macedonia, Achaia, and those places in Europe where he began the European ministry, which included the city of Corinth. Here, on his third missionary journey, many, many months later, Paul is mentioning Barnabas, and it's one of the very few times that he mentions Barnabas as a subsequent mention of the man after their first missionary journey. So apparently, and gratefully, we can say that Paul and Barnabas were reconciled. And we know that to be absolutely certain because Paul will also mention that John Mark is very helpful to him in the ministry as he writes near the end of his uh, life on the earth to Timothy, his dear friend. So Barnabas is apparently recognized by Paul as also an apostle, and that is confirmed in Acts chapter 14. And he, though not one of the original 12 apostles, was an apostle in the ministry as Paul was, 
and he apparently did not have a wife either that he was taking with him. So that's what Paul is arguing here. Again, he's making a defense of those who are saying, are you sure that you really have this authority? Are you really an apostle of Jesus Christ? He continues on in verse 7, whoever goes to war at his own expense, asking again rhetorical questions. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Why is Paul asking these questions? Because he wants them to know that although he has the right to these things, later on he's going to say he doesn't choose to take advantage of that. He goes on in verse 8 and says, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about here? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, that this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now, Paul's setting up the argument that those who minister in spiritual things ought to have some kind of remuneration. And it agrees with what the Lord had said earlier before Paul came on the scene, as we will see momentarily. I find it interesting that he talks about, you know, the farmer planting a vineyard and he's able to participate in what he has planted to provide food for his own table. Or one who tends a flock to be able to drink the milk from the flock. It's very common that anyone would be able to acknowledge those are normal things that a farmer is going to be able to take advantage of his own produce and if dairy uh, farmer would also be able to get the milk out of his crop for his own family as well. So provision is made for the worker, in other words. And in verse 9, he says something of great interest to me. And again, he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. If you were to go there, uh, you would find that that one verse is stuck in the middle of two very unrelated verses. Uh, the first, talking about a judge who judges between a righteous man and a wicked man, and once the judgment is made, the wicked man is given 40 stripes because he had turned against his brother illegally, and that would be the punishment for that particular wicked man if he's found guilty. And then comes the statement that they're not to muzzle an ox that treads out the grain. And following that one verse, verse 4 of chapter 25, uh, we find the argument that Moses makes with regard to a brother who dies, who has a wife, and the wife is to uh, be able to have a child by this man who died. His, his brother is supposed to take his place, and they are to have a child together for the propagation of the dead man's uh, heritage. Neither of those have anything to do with oxen. It just is stuck in the middle of the 25th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. But Paul pulls that out of the book of Deuteronomy and applies it by the Spirit of God to this argument that he's making. And again, the question is, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Obviously, no. Uh, he's said that 
way back in the book of Deuteronomy, hidden between two unrelated verses of Scripture, so that the Spirit of God, by Paul, could pull that verse out and talk about how it applies really to those who are in leadership in the church in this particular case, Paul and others like him, who are ministering spiritual things and then should be able to participate in the reward of receiving that which is material. For that reward is something that every teacher of the word should expect. It was true in Paul's day. It's true today. And so he says in verse uh, 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Again, for our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? So again, lastly, a a rhetorical question, Are, are you really on target with this, Paul? Are you saying that A person who ministers the gospel should be paid for that ministry? And the answer then, as far as Paul is concerned, is yes, absolutely. Now I know that uh, there are churches who are paying their pastors very, very well. Uh, Paying them with a salary that is uh, commensurate with their degrees that they may have earned. Or uh, the... uh, The popularity of the preacher sometimes has something to do with uh, the remuneration that the pastor gets. Um, You know, that's all good, and that's wonderful that they do that. There are other churches, though, who pay very little attention to this particular issue of paying the pastor for his work. I find myself to be very, very satisfied in the way this church has treated me as a pastor. Now, when we started back in 2001... I took no salary. I was working full-time for Dead River, and I was perfectly happy with that arrangement. And we wanted to start the ministry, and we were having a a fairly decent turnout initially, and we were growing, and that was good, and the the money was indeed coming in, so that by the end of uh, the summer, uh, the church board decided that they wanted to bless me with a a token of appreciation by providing me with a meager salary to help me with the expenses of traveling back and forth from Bangor. That was acceptable. That was wonderful. And I appreciated it. I didn't need it because I was still, as I said, working full time. I worked full time until 2006. And during that period of time, the church saw fit to kind of pay attention to the fact that they ought to maybe consider more and more uh, financially uh, to meet more and more of my uh, financial needs, and that was a great blessing as well. It wasn't necessary. I didn't ask for it, but they did it anyway. In 2006, I went to a part-time position with Dead River, and and from that time until 2009, things stayed pretty much the same. And then I ended up leaving Dead River Company, and the church by then had blessed me with a reasonable salary to be able to continue in the ministry full-time now without having to worry about having a second job. And it was much better. You know, it's far better for me as a pastor or for any pastor to be able to spend more time during the daytime hours preparing 
for the ministry. The teachings on the Sundays or the midweek ministries, it occupies a great deal of time for most of us as pastors. It should. Now, when I was working full-time, I had to do most of that preparation at night. So I didn't see my family as much as I would have liked to because I was focused on learning how to teach the Word of God and to prepare for that teaching. But as time went on, as I got more and more uh, time available and full-time now in the ministry, it's a wonderful thing to be able to say, I am so very, very blessed by what the church has done. I don't need any more. I don't ask for any. I never have asked for any more. I just know that God provides, and he has, and I'm grateful for that. I know other churches, uh, one in particular, uh, where the pastor has been working full-time because the church isn't prepared to pay a salary for him. And I'm not sure that it's because they can't afford it any longer. I think it's just because they see him working full-time and don't feel that they have the need to pay him. And I think that's really quite unfortunate. Um, Oftentimes I've had discussions with this particular pastor, and he's never, ever going to ask for the church to provide any income. He's just going to continue doing what he's doing as well as he is able as long as he is allowed to do so. But I find that that's a fault in any church that doesn't take that into consideration. Paul says it so here. He says that this is a principle that even the Lord emphasized in his teachings when he was walking with his disciples. He says in verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Paul is saying, after all, I started this church more justified that he should receive that kind of remuneration than others who did not have any involvement in that. But enduring all things, he says, we do not want to hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul would rather make certain that the gospel is presented and not worry about remuneration towards him or anybody else if that is something that they are considering to be less important, then it shouldn't be a drain on the church. Verse 13 says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings at the altar? Going back into the Levitical system, the priests were able to take a portion of the offering that was made by the people as kind of a payment for their services. And they were provided of all kinds of meat, whether it's uh, the meat off of the burnt offerings or grain offerings or, be, or bread that would be served as, as part of the offering system. They could participate in those things. That was their pay, if you will. In verse 14, he says, Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Where did that come from? Well, we know that in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, tells us that Jesus sent out the 70 by pairs, and he said in sending out those 70 that the laborer is worthy of his hire. And that's found as the words of Jesus, speaking of those things, on behalf of not just the 12 apostles, but the other 70 men that he sent out at another occasion for the same purpose of preaching, proclaiming the gospel. So 
The Lord set the precedent. Paul is agreeing with it. So do all of the others. Paul elsewhere will say that uh, you, not only to not muzzle the ox, but a, a workman is worthy of double his wage. And so Paul is saying you ought to make sure that he's taken care of. And he's arguing this about himself. However, he's saying this for a different reason. He's saying this as he's beginning now in verse 15 to explain his reason for bringing these things up. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that I should that it should be done to me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. I don't want people to say, I made Paul what he is by giving him uh, his wages. It's kind of like what David said when he wanted to buy the, the uh, field of Ornan uh, to have the temple built on that property. Ornan wanted to just give it to him. And David said, no, 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 I'm going to buy it because I will not take for nothing uh, you know, that which is used for the Lord. Paul had the same attitude. I preach, he says in verse 16, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this willingly. I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. So Paul is saying, look, I'm not pressing you to pay me for my services. I want you to understand that I'm compelled to preach the gospel. Whether you paid me or not, that's not what I'm trying to tell you is important to me. What is important to me is that the gospel is preached, and therein lies my reward. I love that attitude of Paul, and that is the attitude I believe that every church leader should have. It's not about how much are they going to pay me. That would be a job. A job seeker would want to know how much are they going to pay me. But a called person, and I believe I have been called, as many pastors in the world today have also been called, as Paul was called, to preach the gospel, and there's a compelling in us of the Spirit of God that brings us to the place where we would say, as Paul did, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's the attitude that a faithful minister of the Lord should always have. He continues now talking about these issues, and in verse 19 he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. So he's saying, as far as ministering to Jews is concerned, I don't want to offend them, so if they think that I should be observing the moral laws or the uh, dietary laws, or even if I'm supposed to, in their presence, do things 
that are only done by Jews, like making vows, as he will do in the book of Acts, according to the book of Acts. James asked him specifically to do that. And so Paul complied, because to the Jew, he didn't want to bring an offense to them, so that he might win them to Christ. And he says, if they were under the law, so I am under the law. If they are coming to me as a Jew, then I will respond to them as a Jew. It says also, to those who are without the law, verse 21, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. He's now here talking about Gentiles. So to the Jew, he became as a Jew. To the Gentile, he became as a Gentile. He does this for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't want to offend. He doesn't want to cause people to stumble. And that is the attitude that he expressed that we as believers must all take, both here in this gospel of this chapter 9 and also in chapter 8, Paul emphasized the need for Christian brothers and sisters to relate to one another in such a way as to not offend one another. Just so happens that on Sunday we'll be talking about offenses again as we started last week. We'll be doing it again this Sunday uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. So there's more to be said on this subject and uh, I, I think it's something that we should be taking very, very seriously as we continue to see evidence of the need for us to pay attention to what God is speaking to the church in this last days uh, through these wonderful writings of the book of Matthew and the letter of 1 Corinthians. Lastly, in this section, he says in verse 22, to the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. And again, that's a reference back to chapter 8, verse 13, where he says, if I'm offending somebody by eating meat, I won't eat meat ever in their presence. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. His focus is on the salvation of souls. And that's only accomplished if you are not going to be in a place where you intentionally offend another. Now this, he says, I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. The reward, he said, is in the ability, the privilege of preaching the gospel. That's Paul's reward, and should be the reward of anyone who is in the ministry. And by the way, we all are in the ministry. Of whatever we do, we are ministering in our homes, in our workplaces. There is a ministry that we are each of us called to, and we each of us should be involved in. Well, verse 24 to the end of the chapter uh, finishes this whole section with a reminder that there are indeed rewards uh, that we should be expecting from the Lord. But it comes at a very, very strict sense of obedience from Paul's perspective. And he uses two examples that are very important for us as we read now what Paul says. Keep in mind that he's speaking to us as well as himself. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. He's telling the Corinthian church and us that we're in a race. It's kind of like the Olympics 
in the Roman days, or actually the Isthmus races, which would be more common for the Corinthian church, uh, they would be very much involved in some of those events, actually. Uh, personally, they may have been in, in direct competition, in running the race. The race that he's talking about is a race that was very common in that day, and the Isthmus races were actually second only to the Olympics uh, in that day, and one would be the winner. There would be no second place, no third place. It would just be a first place winner. And that first place winner of the race would win a laurel wreath initially. And by the time of Paul's day, it would probably be either fir or balsam a wreath tied together and handed to the winner of the race to, to commemorate his victory. But all of them would run in the race with the intention of winning the race. I don't know if any of you have ever been involved in a marathon. The Boston Marathon is a very popular race. Hundreds of people participate. Not everybody is in that race to win. A lot of them are just in the race to say, I was in the Boston Marathon. Others, though, train hard, train for many, many months, and they are very committed they want to win that race. Well, Paul is talking about that desire to win. And it's important to Paul, and it's a great example that Paul sets before us, because he's saying that every one of us, not only are we to run in the race, but we're to run so as to win. Paul says in Philippians, I don't count myself as having attained, but I press on to the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul wanted to win the race. And he tells Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, I ran, I ran that race, and I am glad to say that I finished well. I fought a good fight. And we'll talk about the reward that Paul is expecting for that accomplishment in a few moments. But here in this section of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9, he says to, the, again, the Corinthian church, run so as to win the race. Everyone, verse 25, he says, who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. In other words, he is moderate in how much he eats, he watches his diet, he trains for this, he's temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we run the race that we're in for an imperishable crown. And what is that imperishable crown? Well, there are crowns that are mentioned in the New Testament that we are to expect as believers if we do well in this race. One of the crowns is what Paul will have mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, I've won the race, I fought the good fight, and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But not for me only, but also for all those who love the Lord's appearing. So that includes you and I. It's talking about those who are in the race, those who are born again, those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are in a race to win, and if we do well, we will receive a crown of righteousness. Now that's a good crown to be expecting, and Paul tells us that Everyone who loves the Lord is expecting that crown. James also talks about a crown. In James chapter 1, verse 12, James talks about the crown of life. 
That's also mentioned in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 12.1. So James 1.12, Revelation 12.1. You can look at those verses and see that there is a crown of life mentioned in those verses of Scripture. What a wonderful gift there is for the believers in glory, a crown of life. That implies we are going to be living in Christ for all eternity. But there's another crown. There's a crown mentioned by Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we find Peter mentioning to us that we are to experience another crown, and that is the crown of glory. So we have life eternal. We have glory in our glorified bodies, and we have a crown of righteousness. All of them placed on our heads in that day when we will be in his presence. But I'm also reminded that in the book of Revelation, we see the 24 elders standing before the throne, and they bow the knee, and they cast their crowns before the Lord. I see that as a picture of all of us who have received those crowns, casting those crowns before the Lord, just like those 24 elders. And so I'm convinced that those rewards, as wonderful as they are, are not the only thing that we should be anticipating for reward. And I believe the greatest of all rewards for me and for you, I believe, is the reward that we will hear Christ our God say to us, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou now into your reward. That's the reward I'm looking for. So Paul says again in verse 26, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight as one who beats the air, not as one who beats the air. In other words, a shadow boxer. If you've ever seen any of the major boxers uh, in professional boxing, they spend a lot of time training, not hitting another person, but just shadow boxing. Uh, and it's a good training technique. But Paul's saying, I don't really want myself to be known as a shadow boxer. I'm going for a target. I'm going to hit square and knock my opponent out. And that opponent, by the way, is Satan. And Paul, I'm convinced, is wanting to stand before anyone who opposes him in the presentation of the gospel and be as a fighter who wants to win that fight with a knockout in the first round. That's what Paul's attitude is. Be a runner of victory and a fighter to the very last. Finally, in verse 27, he says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. God forbid that he would forsake any of us, and he has promised that he will not. But sometimes, because of our inappropriate actions, sins in our lives, God will indeed punish, not punish, but, well, reprimand us, and he will chasten us for a season. And that chastening is good, it's necessary, and is done because of love for us, and he does so as a loving father. But Paul is saying here, I discipline my body. I don't want to fail my Lord in anything. So I'm pressing on to that high mark of God in Christ Jesus. I'm running the race so as to win. I'm fighting 
in this fight, the good fight to the very end. And I do so with a desire not to displease my Lord. That's why if my body hinders my running the race, if my body hinders my fighting that good fight, I subject my body to whatever it takes to limit the impact of my body against my being victorious in those areas. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying, I don't need anyone to pay me for this. I do it gladly. It is my right. It is my privilege as an apostle. I could make those things as part of my expectation from you, but I don't. We'll also see later in our studies in the New Testament letters of Paul that he actually does receive many blessings from, in particular, the Philippian church. They blessed him with a great benefit. They provided for much of his need for a very long time in his ministry. They went out of their way. They gave up their uh, necessity. They had very little, but they gave from that very little a lot of Paul's resources that he was able to use in traveling throughout the world. So there were times when Paul received remuneration from churches, not necessarily Corinth, but other churches did indeed contribute to Paul's needs. But elsewhere in the Corinthian letters, Paul is going to say, I have learned to be content in whatever my estate might be. I have learned to be abased. I have learned to be in good financial condition. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned to be well fed. I've learned to be content no matter what my estate, Paul said. And that's exactly how it should be for all of us. I know I am content in what God has provided for me. I am overwhelmed by God's provision. And he daily reminds me of all of the blessings that I have in Christ Jesus. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 that we all have in the present all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We have them now. It is true. We have an inheritance in Christ. We have provision by the Lord for every need. And there are many, many blessings that Paul outlines in that first chapter of Ephesians. You can read it if you would like to see those many blessings. And it's a great treasure to know to me that he has done these things, even though I'm undeserving of it. So I hope that you understand these are the words of the Apostle Paul. They apply to anyone who is in ministry that we should never make any demands upon those who to whom we minister the gospel, just let God be the one who determines that which we are to receive. And when we do, we find great, great reward indeed. So that's what Paul is saying to the church today. I believe that is a good message for all of us to remember. And I hope that you will read first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And read what Paul says with regard to his having fought the good fight in first in Second Timothy chapter four. These are blessings that we can all take to ourselves and apply as we live for him. And I pray that it would be a blessing to all to find that wonderful blessing each day of our lives as we serve him. God bless you. Grace and peace.